Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Edward the Sick. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Welcome to Rex Factory, viewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Now, Graham, you must be upset. We have finally done Henry VIII. We did two episodes on him. Put him to bed. But we have put him to bed. One of our listeners sent us a very lovely message. Um, this is Beatrice uh, Iradru, um, who said, I listened to your programme from Navarre in Spain, enjoying every bit of it, even the Anglo-Saxon kings. Yeah. Nothing, nothing wrong with the Anglo-Saxon kings. Uh, I guess Henry VIII has left you somehow exhausted, but do not stop, please. You're great, both of you. Hey. Lovely, Thank lovely message, much. but don't worry, but we are moving on from Henry VIII and we're not stopping. No, no way, we're plying on through to Elizabeth II, or further. Let's hope not. Indeed, God save the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're on to Edward VI. Um, what would you say is your full level of knowledge about Edward VI? Oh, Edward VI, that's an easy one. He's a young fella. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a short reign, so we can wrap this up in ten minutes, I'd say. Well, let's see how it goes out. He's born in 1537, son of Henry VIII and Jane Seymour, which was wife number three. And the one he loved. Uh, he becomes king in 1547, so he's nine years old, so it's right. a minority. Okay. He's also, a little fact at this point, the last minority. Last time there was a ruler who is under... Another Rex fact. Age, so from this point on they're all adults. That's all right. okay, or at least so. 16, 17. And this normally provides uh, a time for people to start scheming and plotting. So mm. does this mean we're going to have see some... There may well be some right, scheming okay. and plotting. In terms of relationship to Elizabeth II, he's her first cousin 13 times removed. Um, in terms of his appearance, he's uh, pale-faced with fair skin, blonde hair, and he's got sort of waif-like features, so he's quite takes after his mother. Apparently he was a bit short-sighted, had grey eyes, might have a little bit of a high shoulder blade, possibly slightly deaf. Anyway, so... Son is born in 1537, and if we recall, Henry VIII was 46 years old in 1537. He was onto his third wife, the 27th year of his reign, and he still didn't have a male heir. But 1537, if you listened to last week, was after the point where we decided it all is when he changed. So mm. did this bring him round a bit? Was he a bit well? Chappy? I mean, it's certainly a happy time. So when Edward is born, a very difficult birth went uh, lasted over three days. Um, but he was finally born on the eve of the feast of um, feast over St Edward the Confessor, hence mm. the name Edward. Um, and Tower of London battlements fired off more than two thousand rounds of cannon fire wow. in a sort of peal of guns. Oh, Great really? celebration! All of the parish churches within the city walls of London rang out late until the evening. Though wow. massive celebration, they finally got uh, the male yeah. heir because there's a sense that for stability you need to have this continuation. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why Henry, when he came to power, was so celebrated. Absolutely. So after Edward's uh, christening, Henry went back into Jane's bedchambers, held Edward in his arms, apparently blessed him loudly and fervently, and then just burst out in tears. He was so happy. Oh, uh, right. That's nice. And Edward probably burst out in tears because this yeah, big fat man was shouting at him. <laughs> yeah. However, there was tragedy. Twelve days later, Jane Seymour, his mother, the Queen, died. Um, most likely it was caused by retention of parts of the placenta uh, in her uterus in the womb, um, which a midwife apparently would have routinely checked for and removed. 
but because she was the queen, she has been cared for by royal doctors who are more like academics rather than hands-on oh, right. experience. So had she been of lesser status, she probably would have lived. Had a hands-in lady. In, well, indeed, yes. I thought she was a hands-off man. <laughs> um, but Henry VIII, massive hypochondriac in himself, when it comes to his, finally, his most precious jewel, or rather mm. the country's most precious jewel, he's very stringent. No one is allowed to approach Edward's cradle or to touch him without a written permit from Henry himself, regardless of rank. Wow. Mm. All food tasted for poison, and he was rigorous also about hygiene, so the passages and the rooms, all passaging rooms in Edward's apartments, had to be scrubbed with soap three times a day. That shows quite an awareness of hygiene, though. So we're taking a a leap forward. He really was Renaissance, Mm. taking all um, medical discoveries into account. Mm, Definitely. However, Edward did suffer a bout of ill health. In 1541, when he was four years old, he suffered from Corton fever, which is a form of malaria. Which his dad had. Which his dad had, but at four years old, that's very serious. Yeah, blimey. Henry summoned apparently all the doctors in the country, including his chief physician, Sir William Butts, but thankfully, Edward recovered. Promise. And they knew that he was on the road to recovery when apparently Butts asked him if he felt any disposition to vomit at which point the four-year-old Edward called him a fool and told him to go away. <laughs> Brilliant. He's back. He's back. <laughs> However, his early years were rather lonely. He was somewhat starved of affection from uh, by Henry. Even though Henry absolutely loved him, delighted to have this child, he's very much an absent father. Mm. So he's never there. So Edward wrote to Henry apparently quite a few times, nervous about distracting him with his boyish concerns, but never really got much back from Henry. So all that Henry would do would just send him lavish gifts. Yeah. So he'd just spend and spend and give him lots of jewels. So Edward wrote back saying, You have treated me like a most loving father, for if you did not love me, you would not give me these fine gifts of jewellery. Was that a little dig, do you think? No, I think it was more of a, this sort of quite sad thing where he's sort of in his head going, he Oh, he's must, only four, isn't he? He <laughs> must <laughs> love me because yeah. he's given me yeah. presents. I wasn't, I mean, a hug would be nice, but he's given me jewels, so he must, yeah. he must he really. Pays for a hug. And this is jewels, <laughs> yeah. loads. However, he's much closer to his sisters, because he has two older sisters. Uh, of course, yeah. Edward, uh, not Edward, Elizabeth, who is four years older than him, used to make shirts for him every now and again. But he was much closer to Mary, 21 years older than him, and thus a more sort of independent woman. So she came along, visited him regularly, sporting something rotten. So he's quite a bit closer to her. However, it's really when Catherine Parr, his Henry's sixth wife, comes on the scene in 1543, that life gets a bit nicer for Edward. She brings the children back to court, so you've got more of a family atmosphere. And she is, in effect, Edward's first mother figure. Because obviously his mother died 12 days after he was born. Anne of Cleves was next and got dumped off quickly. Catherine Howard got her head cut off. So when was this? How long? How old was he when he came back to court? Um, so 1543, when Catherine Parr comes along, he's six by this point. Oh, right, so it's still formative. and Still in yeah. the formative years. Uh, but so he writes to her, Almost noble queen, perchance you are amazed that I write to you so often in so short a time. This I now do most willingly, for I have a fitting messenger, my servant, so that I cannot fail to send letters to bear witness my devotion to you. Is that a word-for-word translation? Because that's a very talented chap. Well, we'll come on to that. <laughs> Um, because she very much encouraged his education and she took a great interest in it so they were always writing to each other and by eight he was writing letters in Latin and then he was studying Greek from 1549 also learning other sort of humanist teachings and yeah, things like that Yeah, but he didn't have Xbox, did he? That's true, yeah. that is true so, you know, who's the rich man really? <laughs> yeah. And he also, from Catherine Parr's insistence was being educated with other sort of nobles of his rough age so he had some mates 
So he's got uh, the late uh, the sons of the late Charles Brandon, who's the Duke of Suffolk. I've heard a story about this. Uh huh. He, whenever he's naughty, yes. they beat uh, his friend. It's suggested, yes, because so that um, a lot of apparently royal princes had this a sort of beating boy. Yeah. So that he'd get hit. I, it's suggested by other people that Edward probably did get hit himself. Right. But yes, it is true that certainly some royal princes would have had a whipping boy. Quite. I don't like the idea of that. Well, clearly at all, but... <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, so, that's, so that's Henry and Charles Brandon. Robert Dudley is a contemporary of his who were going to be very famous in oh, Elizabeth's Elizabeth, reign. Yeah. But his best friend was a lad called Barnaby Fitzpatrick, who was the son of an Irish peer. Right. So probably the least um, noble, in a sense, yeah. but he was his best mate, so he used to write to him quite a lot throughout his reign. Um, also in this... Uh, well, not quite in this period, but in 1550 but it's very useful, as a chronicle which is written by Edward. So from the age of 12, he starts keeping essentially a diary, which starts off as just a summary of events from his birth, but then ends up being a kind of day-by-day account. So it's, it's literally the king, or prince, as he was initially, just writing down, 3rd of April, such and such happened, Lord really? Somerset told me about all of this. It's That's am- amazing. It's an amazing source. I've got it over there. It's well, not the original, obviously. <laughs> I can't believe I've never heard about that. It's amazing. one of the best sources for the rain, well, yeah. because obviously everyone's telling him what's going on. Felt a bit peaky today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he's being educated, he's got his mother figure, and then in 1547, Henry VIII is dying. Mm. Henry is fearful of what will happen, of course. He wants the succession to be strong and his son to be able to rule. So in his will that he's writing up in 1547, he's fearful of a protectorate where one of the nobles is mighty over all of the others. He doesn't want this and he doesn't trust them all. So what he does is he says that they must have a regency council. This is going to be 16 nobles of equal authority. And because no dukes at the moment are alive, except for Norfolk who's in prison and should have been killed had Henry not died Um, they're not able to be promoted so everything has to stay as it is they're all equal and when Edward becomes king it's easy for him Mm. however there is a coup right Edward Seymour um, the eldest uncle of Edward VI who is Lord Hertford at this point he conspires with the King's Secretary William Paget and they alter Henry's will so that he can seize power so there's something called an unfulfilled gifts clause, which allows the executors of the will a free hand to bestow honours and estates. Right. Under the guise of saying, oh, if there were things which were owed to people, then mm-hmm. we can sort this out. But what that means is that Hartford is made the Duke of Somerset. So he's now the most... Noble. Most senior noble, and he's made Lord Protector. Right. Doubtful whether Henry would have signed this off, but of course they have a dry stamp in signature so that they can do it, mm. even without... Really God, on his it. deathbed, still you'd be scared. Well, yeah, it's risky. Um, there is a bit of opposition. The Lord Chancellor, um, Ryersley, is sort of a conservative, so he's a bit of an enemy of Somerset, and he's got control of the Great Seal, which is the thing which you need to actually say, yes, this is official. Um, but they force him to resign on accusation of regularities, and sure enough, Somerset becomes the protector. Edward is king, Somerset is protector. Edward's coronation, apparently it was this grand procession, really lengthy route, lots of stoppages along the way for entertainment. Apparently got a bit tiring for the young uh, Edward, the new king. Apparently at one point he spurred his horse on to escape an old man coming towards him dressed as Edward the Confessor and about to proclaim a long ode in Latin. 
Yeah, he would. Kicked the horse, yeah. off he went. Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, his address insisted on the royal authority of the king over the bishops of Rome and the bishops of Canterbury. So he gives a very stark message about really pushing the Reformation on. And so we've got a protector under Somerset. Because Edward's nine, obviously at this point it's really the deeds of other people mm-hmm. rather than directly Edward himself. One of the first things that Somerset gets his um, actions onto is something called the rough wooing. Now this is to do with Scotland because there had been a treaty of Greenwich in which Edward had been betro- uh, Edward VI had been betrothed to Mary Queen of Scots. His si- what? Oh, Mary, yeah, Mary Queen, Queen of Scots, Scots not yeah, Mary, Mary. Mary Tudor. And yeah. um, the idea being that this would allow a union of the crowns; the yeah. old enemy would be curtailed. Uh, but Scotland weren't too keen on it, so Somerset goes off there to force them by military means. And at the Battle of Pinkie Clough. In 1547, Somerset defeats a large Scottish army. Big, big victory, but it backfires. By invading Scotland, it encourages France to come along and help out. They ship Mary, Queen of Scots, off to France. She gets betrothed to the French Dauphin. The marriage with Edward VI is off the cards. The cost of the garrisons that he sets up put a huge strain on the economy. Right, Okay. So he's had a military victory, but hasn't really achieved anything. Mm. However, his bigger concern for Somerset is his younger brother, Thomas Seymour. Um, David Starkey describes him as being tall, well-built, with a dashing beard and auburn hair, he was irresistible to women. Mm. So he's charming, he's roguish, he's a bad boy. Yes. So unlike Somerset, who's a rather dour character, Seymour, charming mm. and dashing, but temperamental. Right. Sure enough, there's rivalry. He resents the power that Somerset has built up and the fact that he... Um, Thomas Seymour is not appointed to be Edward's governor. Despite the fact that he gets made Lord Admiral and a uh, Privy Councillor, that's not enough for him. He wants to be governor of Edward's person. So he sets about getting it, secretly gets royal approval from Edward for him to marry the Dowager Queen, Catherine Parr. Right. So Thomas Seymour yeah. marries Catherine Parr, and Edward in 1548 records, Lord Seymour married the Queen, whose name was Catherine, by which marriage the Lord Protector was much offended. So even he's aware of the power. Oh yeah, so Somerset's not very happy about this. And the extent of um, Seymour's naked ambition is revealed when Catherine Parr, tragically, in 1548, dies after giving birth uh, to a daughter called Mary. uh, Seymour then tries to transfer his affection to Princess Elizabeth. About 14, 15 at this point. So he had Catherine Parr, and now he wants to marry one of the daughters of Henry VIII. Imagine how Henry VIII would react to that. Uh, unpleased. His way his family. <laughs> unpleased. Um, sure enough, Somerset and the rest of the council are also not very pleased because if you're marrying one of the children of Henry VIII, those children will have mm. a claim to the throne. But that's not enough. He tries to force himself to become governor, lob- tries to lobby a bill through Parliament to make him so, tries to persuade Edward to sign a document that will, in effect, say, yes, he is my governor. But Edward's a little bit suspicious about this and going, what's in this? document. Oh, nothing of ill. What is it? And he keeps asking him questions and apparently Somerset then, uh, Seymour then starts to get a bit irritated at which point Edward told him to go away. Mm. And maybe called him a fool as well. <laughs> um, getting more and more frustrated, Seymour, he decides the only way I can do this is if I am in control of Edward. If I've got constant access to Edward, if I'm controlling him, I can control what's going on in government. Mm. So he plots, in effect, to abduct Edward. Not in a holding him to ransom way, merely as a, if I'm in control of him, then... He's staying at my house type thing. He's staying at my house. So, 
he comes along to uh, Edward's chambers, pistol in hand, literally ready to, you know, do what he has to do to get him. Gets to the door, fumbles with the key, and then he's surprised when Edward's little dog comes along and starts attacking him and yapping at him. And in his panic, he shoots the dog. No. He killed Edward's dog. This what? Do we have a record of what the dog's called? I I don't. All right. Well, if you know, email in. He was a brave, brave dog. Yeah, brave dog. Very brave dog. He died uh, serving his master. Seymour, indeed. (laughs) Seymour, of course, is arrested. Judges felt there wasn't actually enough evidence for treason, but Somerset, his brother, was pretty determined, so they gave him an attainder anyway, and in 1549, he is executed. Right. So, Thomas Seymour, gone. On on the charges of shooting a dog, or...? I think just generally plotting to take over the world yeah. by any means necessary. Yeah, we all know why you're here, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can't narrow it down to anything yeah, particular, but, you know, generally. Um, also going on at this time, uh, Cranmer is pushing on with religious reform. Because remember, he was one of the sort of Protestant-leaning types in Henry VIII's reign, but Henry had left things balanced between Protestants, Catholics. He's not quite sure which... Yeah, that surprised me. Mm, but yeah. Cranmer, now that he's got this opportunity he's just going full out let's just yeah, do it yeah. so this is a really radical period Edward is hailed as a new Josiah who is sort of a biblical boy king who purged the land of idols so, on, on, so Cramner's framing him as, as this so yeah. that he goes along with it okay. yeah. Yeah. so they repeal the six articles of 1539 which are these sort of Catholic doctrines that Henry VIII um, accepted sought to remove old traditions like the images uh, idolatry use of candles and holy water sanctioned clerical marriage then 1547, Cranmer issued a book of homilies, which is sort of a set text of sermons so that they could prevent um, priests from preaching against oh, right. the reforms. Mm. So they had to agree with this. Not everybody did. So some of the big bishops, like Bonner, who was the Bishop of London, and Gardner, who was one of the key conservatives of Henry's reign, the Bishop of Winchester, are arrested. Right. Okay. And in prison for most of the reign. So when you say they're getting rid of um, uh, idols and things like that, is that when we see all the statues and churches getting... Yeah, absolutely. So that wasn't actually mm. in Henry's reign? He does it a bit, um, particularly with the dissolution, but yeah, it's... But it's the Reformation as a whole, rather yeah, than... Yeah, but it's really point. this here, where oh, right, it really okay. happens on a big scale. And then 1549, we have the Act of Uniformity, which enforces a new book of common prayer, which establishes the sole form of legal worship across England, and the service is in English now, rather than Latin, which right. is a major yeah, change. Yeah. However, there are lots of difficulties going on in the period, and Somerset starts to come under pressure. 1549, lots and lots of rebellions break out across the country. It happens in lots of different counties, but there are two in particular, the West Country and uh, Norfolk. So in the West Country, there's anger at the English prayer book and Cranmer's Reformation. They don't want it. So processes in Bodmin and Devon combine, and a march is led to Exeter, where they besiege the city. Right. In Norfolk, a man called Robert Kett leads a rebellion protest against a thing called enclosures, which is where common fields, which were open for everyone to come along and till and do agricultural work, get enclosed so that they're just owned by one person and not everyone can use them. So it takes away their opportunity to make a living from the soil. So about 15,000 people join this rebellion, and they take Norwich. However, the rebels are defeated. Uh, Lord John Russell and Lord William Grey put down the rebellion in the south-west, while Earl of Warwick, uh, John Dudley, um, who's the father of Robert Dudley, uh, defeats Ket in Norwich. And then, as you'd expect, the usual reprisals take place, as Edward records, taking Ket, their captain, who in January following was hanged at Norwich, and his head hanged out. 
Nasty. So, dealt mm. with that. However, Somerset isn't out of the danger. He's got a big problem, and the problem is him. His own personality, just people don't particularly like him. He's become incredibly overmighty, sort of almost an overmighty subject that we remember from before. Council now is little more than a means of endorsing his decision, so there's no discussion, it's not um, they're not on that equal footing Henry VIII has intended. Yeah. It's almost a dictatorship. He's got the influence that Wolsey had early in Henry VIII's reign, but there isn't a Henry VIII to check him, because mm. Edward's just mm. a boy. He's arrogant, tactless, uh, apparently reduced a colleague to tears in one council meeting when he shouted at him. As you said, the wars in Scotland had proved costly. He was very slow to respond to the rebellion, so as he's seen his other nobles who actually put mm. it down, he doesn't really do it. And the economy is in dire straits. Because we've got the coinage has been debased, partly to pay for the Scottish wars, the land enclosure is causing problems, everything's not going very well. And the man who helped him get to his position, William Paget, writes to him in um, a very uncompromising terms, saying that society in a realm doth consist and is maintained by mean of religion and law. Look well whether you have either law or religion at home, and I fear you shall find neither. Mm. And then, particularly pointedly, Remember what you promised me in the gallery at Westminster before the breath was out of the body of the king that dead is, and that was to follow mine advice in all your proceedings more than any other man's. Basically saying everyone's against you, so seriously, buck up your ideas. Right. But he doesn't. No, I'm surprised by this, because normally someone in this position has got there by um, military means, or at least has has such a hold over other people, Mm. whereas he just got there by a big rubber stamp. Yeah. And, And... hasn't fought, it hasn't fallen apart yet and this is a couple of years later yeah surprising so what happens is as Edward records the council about 19 of them were gathered in London thinking to meet with the Lord Protector and making him amend some of his disorders so Somerset realising that he's under pressure removes Edward VI from Hampton Court to Windsor Castle realises however that his position is futile nobody's going to come and support him so he negotiates with the council so then letters go back and forth between them as Edward calls in one of them, was a very gentle letter to declare the protector's faults, ambition, vainglory, entering into rash wars during my youth, enriching himself for my treasury, following his own opinion, and doing all by his own authority, etc., etc. Edward actually writes, etc., etc. That's right. It pulls no punches, does it? Yeah, definitely. So, on the 10th of October, Somerset surrenders, and the protectorate is over, and he's imprisoned in the town of London. Chopped his head off? Nope, he's still there. There's a bit of a power vacuum, but that is filled by John Dudley, the Earl of Warwick, who sorted out one yeah. of those rebellions. He's the son, if we recall, of Edmund Dudley, who was one of the chief financial ministers of Henry the Seventh, who got executed right at the start of Henry the Eighth's reign. Who was very, very efficient. Mm. Yeah. In taking everybody's money. Yeah. So John Dudley gets restored to his position, is knighted by the Duke of Suffolk in, in the fifteen twenty three French campaign. In the 1540s, he's made a Knight of the Garter, privily councillor, he's become a very powerful figure. 1547, he supported Somerset's protectorate, so that's how he came to be the Earl of Warwick. Um, but 1549, he's one of the people that helps engineer the downfall. And then he secures his own position by opposing the Conservatives in the council. So although they might have thought, we're on the rise now that Somerset's gone, mm. Gardner is in prison, Riosley is sick and old, so... What Dudley does is he allies himself with Cranmer, who of course wants to do his Protestant reforms, and in 1550 he releases Somerset from prison. Well, how does that help? Because he needs his support to defeat the Conservatives in the council. But but Somerset didn't have any... Is his support worth anything? He doesn't have any friends. 
Well, he's, you know, he's a major figure. He's a nobleman, I suppose. And he's a man of court, yeah. So, from sort of 1550-51, he's not ever named Lord Protector, but Dudley is, in effect, the regent. And in 1551, he becomes the Duke of Northumberland. Right. So, again, remember we do our who's who if you lose track of all these people whose names keep changing, Dudley, Warwick, Northumberland. Mm. But he is now Northumberland. And his government is rather more successful. 1550, um, he signs the Treaty of Boulogne, with France, where they'd had several difficult years of ongoing fighting and sieging, trying to keep hold of Boulogne, and similarly France trying to take it back. So, Dudley, Northumberland, gives Boulogne back to France, in return for, and agrees to stop uh, fighting with Scotland, in return for which they get a decent payment from France and no more warfare. And the French overseas. aren't going to support the Scots. Yeah. Mm. It must, this must have looked like a bit of a betrayal, though, to all those people who... Oh yeah, definitely. It's not a popular thing to do, no, but it's no. probably of benefit yeah, to the country. Something. They also sort out the economy. A man called Thomas Gresham comes in to fix the Th- coinage. Thomas what? Gresham? Thomas Gresham. Oh, oh shame. <laughs> Thomas Gresham. <laughs> That's a brilliant name. Um, value of the pound rises again. Um, they have a deflationary monetary policy, rationalise government procedures and remove some of their overseas debt. So they're sorting the economy out again, so things yeah. are getting a bit more stable. However, there's still faction at court. Somerset, as you might have predicted, starts to want to get his old power back. So he starts to link up with the Conservatives at court against Dudley, against Northumberland. They're seeing each other off, and there are some plots afoot. To stop Somerset with all of his uh, plots and shenanigans, he is arrested and executed for treason in 1552. Somerset's? Uh, Somerset, who was the Seymour brother, so Edward He's, Seymour, yeah. the other uncle, executed. Right. On because largely trumped up charges. They yeah. didn't really have any evidence. Uh, yeah, he needs to go, really. But he's gone. Yeah. This has all been about everybody else. But Edward himself is developing as a young man into a king, and as you said, a very intelligent boy. He's writing lots and lots of essays now, um, composing apparently 1,000 word essays in Latin and Greek every two weeks. Uh, from 1551, so he'd got about 55 essays in Latin, about 50 in Greek, and these are sort of rhetorical exercises, so that he's been trained to weigh up both sides of an argument. Mm. So one week he does an essay about um, a glorious military campaign and how brilliant it was. The next time he's doing about the devastation of war and the negative sides. So he's been taught to. Yeah, who's he being taught by? Is he had to have tutors? Yeah, he's got uh, tutors. Sort of, uh, John Cheek is one of them. He's got these sort of renowned humanist scholars of the age, so sort of Renaissance men right, who've got yeah. lots of things. And apparently he always came to the same sort of very regal conclusion where he would just write, I have finished Edward Rex. <laughs> I like the cut of this fella's jib. <laughs> and, and also we see in his chronicle how much of an understanding he's got of all the issues that are going on. Mm. So he's writing about everything in great detail. Indeed, the coinage and the issues around there and about the weights of the coin and how much metal is within it he writes about this in great length and all the decisions that are made so this is showing he's really understanding mm. the major issues that are going on at the moment however it's not just in his uh, his mental stuff his education he's also able to do lots of physical stuff because he's not as is always portrayed this sickly little child that coughs a lot and then dies mm, this is what I thought before was, Ed- yeah. Elizabeth comes along apart from that little bit of malaria when he was four He's basically pretty healthy, and he's a normal sort of 16th century aristocratic teenager. He's doing lots of hunting and riding. 1551, apparently he played tennis 293 times. 
Who's keeping a track of that? Him in his diary, I suppose. Actually. Well, apparently, I can't remember who it was, but there was someone who got paid to do something, to set things up every time Edward wanted to oh, play tennis. Right, so okay. they had a record of it, and of course this guy made thousands because he was playing <laughs> so much tennis. So every time it's like, you want a, more tennis? Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> like a holiday rep. Um, that's like his dad then. Very much so, and he's also like his dad, he likes to perform in plays and masquerades at court. He even starts directing them. In 1551, so he's taking it to another level right. from Henry VIII. His chronicle is full of references to games and tournaments, and you can tell he's always disappointed when he relates the defeat for one of his own teams. So, yeah, he absolutely, like his dad, loves yeah. getting involved in all this sort mm. of stuff and active and fairly healthy. Is it physically similar then? Because I noticed on the front cover of his book, yeah. his diary, he's very much wearing that same pose that we were if have of Henry. That's the most improbable proportions of yes. a child I've ever seen. It's Henry VIII with a child's face. On it. <laughs> yes, anyway. I mean, he's as wide there as I'm tall, and he's eleven or something. And I am, um, yeah. You see, what's going on here? I mean, to be fair, he's, he's got big clothes on, hasn't he? I mean, he's got a that's he's just a big look. cloak, and he's got a doublet and all sorts of. I'll things see on. if I can put that on the Facebook page. Yeah. And he is on the threshold of power. Northumberland, a big thing that he does to help secure his position, he recognises Edward's intelligence and recognises that he's going to be ready to become king. So he encourages him to get involved as much as possible to keep him up yeah, to date with yeah. what's going on. He starts attending smaller meetings of council. Northumberland does this. Northumberland does this for to bring Edward into the Not, not the protector of the court. Not protector, Somerset yeah. didn't do this, no, Northumberland does. Northumberland is the guy who replaced Somerset. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so he starts attending smaller council meetings, starts signing warrants for payments by his own hand, where previously everyone in council mm. had to do it. 1552, for the first time, he leaves London and goes on a progress in the south-east of oh, England right. without Northumberland. So he obviously felt secure enough to let him go off by himself, but it means that he's actually out there now, in person, mm. seeing everybody. Opening swimming pools and... Yes. <laughs> There are some limitations to this. It was probably fair to say that Northumberland used to prime him with notes for speeches. So when he'd come along to council the next day and deliver a speech, everyone would go, wow, he's, he's so on the ball, he knows everything, he's running us ragged. And it's like, yeah, it's because Northumberland's passed him a note. Mm. But still, he's an intelligent young boy, and he's, you know, he's yeah. on the threshold. In particular, we can see religion as an area where Edward really does a lot. Some have suggested that because in his chronicle he almost never mentions it, that actually maybe he wasn't so religious, but apparently he used to keep a book of all the sermons and notes that he made from sermons. So he He's really separating church and state. Separating church and state. And actually, this is my church book. It's yeah. my state book. Sadly, we've lost the church book. Oh, so there's less direct okay. evidence of that. But he starts young, 1548 or 1549, when he's um, 11, 12 years old, he writes a treatise against the Pope. Right. So in the way that Henry VIII wrote that one supporting the Pope and became defender of the faith, Edward, about 11 years old, writes this great long essay of all the reasons why the Pope is the Antichrist and all these <laughs> sorts of things. If you're reading his dad's essays then, well, later ones. He uh, takes a bit of interest in the Order of the Garter in 1550. Mm. He doesn't like it in many ways because he sees that it's an old institution that's more about Catholicism in many ways. He's got a lot of those traits. So it's St George, for example, as the patron saint. It's a saint, for one thing, it's a Catholic saint. So Edward wants to get rid of St George. He proposes a new and catchy name, which is the Order for the Defence of the Truth Wholly Contained in Scripture. Doesn't roll off the tongue, Didn't catch it, no. And uh, he also designed a new emblem. So rather than the cross, 
At what age did he do this? And this is when he's 13. So it's presumably got lightning bolts through it and wheels and all sorts of Nope, again, rather like his father, it's a picture of himself. Oh, right, okay, nice, yeah. In my image, presumably. (laughs) Big picture of him and his thumbs up going to Edward's club. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And also, there's uh, the Bishop of Gloucester, or the new Bishop of Gloucester-to-be, John Hooper, is going to be consecrated as the Bishop, and Edward's there, and he notices in the oath um, that they still made reference to saints and all these old religion things. And he sees it himself, and he says, What wickedness is here, Hooper? Are these officers ordained in the names of the saints or of God? And then before anyone can do anything, he just takes his pen, strikes it out. Really? Major theological change to how bishops are consecrated um, ever after. Yeah, and he just... Peace King just does it. Wow. So he is really involved, and he's um, he's got the confidence to... Do things like that. Definitely, and the point is that when he does do things and get involved, even though he's young, there's still a sense of he is the king. If he does it, yeah, that's it. So they didn't have to ratify that through Parliament. It was like, well, that's it now. Then he's crossed it out. Mm. Done. And in particular, we see Edward really getting involved with his sister Mary and her religion. Because although they had been very close, from an early age, Edward was showing concern at Mary's religious views because she was a Catholic mm. of the old school. So in 1546, writing to Catherine Parr, this is when he's uh, nine years old, Preserve therefore, I pray you, my dearest sister Mary, from all the wiles and enchantments of the evil one, and beseech her to attend no longer to foreign dances and merriments which do not become a most Christian princess. Yeah, a bit nosy. A little bit nosy. Yeah. He's a bit priggish yeah. in some ways. But things get more tense once he becomes king and once he really starts to take on his religious policy. In 1550, the council start to put pressure on Mary and her household. They want to deny them the right to hear mass. Mm. However, it doesn't get any better for her. In 1551, in March, there's a showdown between Mary, council and Edward. Because Mary's always believed that basically Edward is very young, he doesn't really know what's going on, and once he comes of age and majority, he'll sort them all out. So they shouldn't be dabbling with religious policy because it's not what her brother will want to do. Mm. However, she is shocked to discover that actually Edward's very much pushing all of this. So she comes to court in March, apologised that she hadn't come sooner because she'd been ill, to which Edward immediately replies that God had sent him health and to the princess illness. Oh God! Getting tense. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Mary protested that she and her household had previously been allowed to hear mass. This was under Somerset. He let them just carry on. But Edward said that he had only now just started to become involved in matters of state, so all the old arrangements weren't valid anymore because he was just only starting Mm. to deal with them. Mary suggested that riper age and experience would teach him much yet. He might change his mind when you know a bit more. To which he responded that she also might still have something to learn, for no one was too old for that. So real back and forth here between brother and sister. It's quite, quite sharp. Very sharp. Mary then bursts out, declares that God would always have her soul, but Edward could have her body and take her life if he wanted to. She's basically saying, I'm going to keep to this, and if you want to kill me, then you can kill me. Essentially, she pushed the nuclear button then after she three sentences pushed the nuclear button Edward's really shocked at this cause, and sort of says I don't want to do that and then Mary starts to cry when Edward sees that she's crying he starts crying as well all of well. a sudden he's ten again <laughs> all of a sudden yeah. he's ten gets very emotional but um, it's not over he still afterward writes to her and said this is setting a bad example if the king's sister is flouting the religious rules then how can we yeah. uphold it for anyone else but it takes on an international significance because Mary via Catherine Ravigan is related 
to the Imperial Emperor. And Spain. And Spain. Mm, yeah. um, so he is furious when he hears about this. So he says, I will not suffer her to be evil handled by them. I will not suffer it. Is it not enough that mine aunt, her mother, was evil and treated by the king that dead is? But my cousin must be worse ordered by counsellors now? So then Edward records that the Emperor's ambassador came with a short message from his master threatening war if I would not allow his cousin, the princess, to use her mat. Full stop. Yeah, so he doesn't mention what uh, He then said no, no reply was given at this stage. So Spain are threatening war if Mary isn't allowed to hear mass. Council takes this threat very seriously. Not sure if it really actually was a viable option for Spain, but council are very worried about it. Go to great lengths to persuade Edward, who isn't budging at all. Cranmer and other bishops come in and basically convince him that he could suffer and wink at it for a time. I saying, yes, we know it's sinful to hear mass and we know it's sinful to allow people to hear mass because you know that it's sinful but nevertheless it might be better just to you know not irk the king of Spain too much and he goes along with it well he's on the verge of tears when they're forcing forcing this down on him but he will not back down maintains his argument and indeed later in the year the pressure on Mary continues her chaplain Mallet gets arrested they keep the pressure up so you could say actually he he, hold, he holds he, out. Yeah, okay. Argues him down, chat. carries on. So we really see he's he's a strong position. He's in 1552, 53. He's now coming to 14, 15. He's not short of 16th birthday. He's you know he's nearly there. He's nearly mm. a man. He's nearly his majority. And he's got he's got the chops. Very much got the chops, but ill health. 1552, he writes to his friend Barnaby, We have been little troubled with the smallpox, which has stopped us writing here too, but we have now shaken that quite away. Which he did, he recovered, but unfortunately smallpox may also have been a bit of measles in there. It suppresses the body's immunity, right. left him very vulnerable. In 1553, he goes into a terminal decline. A Spanish ambassador recorded, He is beginning to break out in ulcers. He is vexed by a harsh, continuous cough. His body is dry and burning, his belly swollen. He has a slow fever upon him that never leaves. He has not the strength to stir and can hardly breathe. His nails and hair are dropping off and all his person is scabby. That's quite a disease. Do we work out what that might be? The diagnosis <laughs> is a uh, separating pulmonary infection leading to acute bilateral bronchopneumonia, generalised septicemia, particularly in the lungs, getting ulcerous and uh, pus-filled, and finally renal failure. God, grief. He wasn't coming back from that. No. Without antibiotics, impossible to Mm. treat in that period. So he's clearly on the way out, and he makes a will, like Henry. Mm. And Edward, of course, is very fearful that as the next in line in the act of succession is Mary, Mm. she's just going to come in, undo all of his work with the Reformation, make everything Catholic again. So he plans to stop this. Plan one, a son of one of the grey women. And these are... Um, women who are descended from Charles Brandon and Henry VIII's sister Mary Tudor, not the daughter yeah. sister. So these obviously have uh, claim to the throne. Are they, is that the closest next? Well, they're cousins. Whenever one of them has a male son, he will become king. In the meantime, there will be a regency council set up with these women as governesses. So that's quite a step, isn't it? It's quite a step, but it's also a bit awkward because it's not actually. He's got about four or five different people. Yeah, who different could women who at some point might have a son. Yeah, so it's not very clear. Northumberland also stands to lose out under Mary. At the very least, he's going to be removed from power. 
if not worse. Mm. So he marries his one of his sons, Guildford, to Lady Jane Grey, one of the Grey women, Edward's Hello. cousin, very strong. <laughs> and says get at it. And says get at it. So <laughs> plan two, uh, Lady Jane Grey is made the sole heir, so she is actually going to become queen. That's plan two. And well, it's the second pa- revised plan. plan. Right. Revised plan A. Um, so Lady Jane Grey is his heir. Mary and Elizabeth are removed from the succession because they are still technically illegitimate. Technically, this is legally dubious. Edward is still a minor at this stage, so technically you can't really make it valid until it's ratified by Parliament, which they can't do because they haven't got time because he's so ill. Um, so Edward Montague, a judge, protested that it would pretty much be treason to go against the old act of succession. Mm-hmm. The new one wasn't really valid. And then Edward himself spoke to the judges. They came to his chamber, strongly argued and demanded that they comply. Why um, can't he just sign it? He's king. Well, yes, because he's a minor, so they have to say, yes, this is what's going to happen, we're going to do it. Right, and there's really not time to get everyone else in. No. Right. But they agree. Grudgingly, they agree. On the 6th of July, Edward dies at Greenwich at the age of 15, a few months short of turning 16. And apparently he was said agonising illness of course said to whisper to his tutor near the end I'm glad to die mm, yeah that sounds Jack horrific mm. good grief anyway that is the end of Edward the Sixth. promised so much it's on the cusp mm. yeah couldn't quite cross the threshold okay let's do it so let's get on with the review yeah, yeah. battleiness there are some positives happened in this period. The first thing, of course, was, uh, as we mentioned, the Battle of Pinky Clough in 1547. It was a bit fair. Well, it, it was very yeah. fair. However, as you said, Somerset looking to put pressure on Sc- Scotland. Scotland had about 20,000 men, a sort of light 2,000 cavalry, infantry, pikemen. England, about 17,000 men, but they also had 30 warships, about 6,000 cavalry, and a large artillery train. Yeah. So it's I'm basically sorry, a Renaissance army against a medieval army. Yeah. Sure enough, the Scots are outflanked by the naval and land artillery. God, that sounds like both sides. Um, forced into retreat, slaughtered in the process, lose about 6,000 men, many others captured, against about 600 for England. So it's right, an overwhelming yeah. for England. And it's the last pitch battle between England and Scotland. Well, now that they're flying out of these facts. All these they? facts. Also, although it's not particularly great for big set-piece battles, in 1549 those rebellions could have posed a huge threat. There were thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people involved, the rebels, but mm. it's all put down. Edward's never really in any kind of danger, so yeah, yeah that's yeah, a positive. Yeah, yeah. And Edward himself, the chronicle shows, he's fascinated with military events, particularly 1551-1552. It's full of accounts of fighting in France and other engagements going on. He's very much interested in it. He loves his riding, loves his hunting, delights in descriptions of jousts and tournaments, involved in archery. And even 1552, when he wanted to lose a little progress, he went to Portsmouth and found defensive weaknesses. So he wrote back to his friend Barney that they were ill-fashioned, ill-flanked and set in unmeet places, the town weak in comparison of what it ought to be. I devised two strong castles on either side of the haven at the mouth thereof. It's a good plan. So, you know, he's only 15 at this point, but yeah. he's already starting to do some military stuff mm. and the defensiveness, so he's showing willing, he's got promise. He's very much his father's son in that sense. Yeah. But, of course, there's bad. As you said, Scotland is a completely pyrrhic victory. Mm. Mary, Queen of Scots, heads off to France and marries the Dauphin, so they don't get that. Huge economic pressure leads, in fact, to the 1549 rebellions, and they're forced to withdraw, ultimately. So, not yeah, really a success. Not very good. And in France, 
Treaty of Boulogne meant that they're surrendering the town to Henri II of France. In fairness, of course, Northumberland realises that it's too costly to keep it up, and Edward was then betrothed to the daughter of Henri II of France, so, you know, they get something good out of it. But it's not very good military stuff. No, no. So, you know, we had uh, some potential positives in there, but they're not, potential positives not really there. anything big, is it? Oh, one. I mean, the fact that he liked war, didn't take part in any. There were things done in his name that, that were actually, on the whole, on balance, fairly negative. Mm. He did build a couple of bits of forts in Portsmouth. His one chance to do something military, and he gets straight he onto does, it. He does, and he does. And for that, he gets a point and one for potential. I, I don't know. I'm giving him one. I'm giving him a three because it's, it's a big win. Uh, even though Pyrrhic, it's a good military win against the Scots, and it's the last battle against the Scots, and he does what he can do. But we're going to give it as a four in social for battliness. Yeah. Scandal. I mean, he's very young, obviously, and as we've seen, he's a bit priggish and prim, so he's, <laughs> he's not really someone to embrace mm. scandal, but I've done what I can to <laughs> great, ruffle up some scandal. Great, this barrel. This is when he's prince, 1539-40, uh, when he's... He's about two or three years old. Uh, he, no, don't tell me. He messed his nappy again. Well, unbelievable. Worse than that, he cries. Oh. Ambassadors coming over from Cleves, because this is when we get the negotiations for the marriage to, between Henry VIII and Anne of Cleves, they come to court very keen to see Edward as the prince, so he gets brought out, and it's an important diplomatic moment where you know the next king, in effect, is meeting them. But unfortunately, he breaks out into tears, and he cries and cries and cries can't be pacified, presumably because he doesn't have a pacifier in those days. <laughs> and the only way that they could get him to stop was that the old Earl of Essex had to pull comical faces <laughs> and then with his big beard that he had put it in front of Edward's face and tickled him so that he laughed. That's brilliant. All these noblemen reduced to <laughs> wet nurses. That's amazing. Cookie, cookie, cookie. <laughs> oh, yeah, but what can you expect of a three-year-old? Indeed, well, a little bit better maybe. But, but I mean, for a uh... To ask him to come out and be... Oh, brilliant. <laughs> anyway, so that's one bit of scandal. Uh, a second one is a little bit of misbehaviour. Oh, no. Not an awful lot of this, but it was an amusing one. In 1547, apparently he started swearing and blaspheming a lot. At what age? Uh, well, this is when he is ten. Yeah, I can see that happening. Not swearing yeah. and blaspheme. Apparently, he, when someone said, what do you think you're doing, young man, while well, you blaspheming and swearing, apparently one of his classmates had told him that kings always swore. So, being a little bit gullible, he thus yeah. starts yeah. to swear. So, it's not a sign of rebellion. He just thinks, oh, well, I'm king, I better start swearing then. Yeah. And um, sure enough, the classmate gets beaten and Edward himself severely reprimanded and told that's swear. Blasphemy. The other one, which is a little bit more valid, perhaps, is that he's often seen as being very cold emotionally. Mm. Well, he turns on his sister quite he turns on his sister and also we see in his chronicle there's very little emotion very little personal feeling so it's not a sort of diary in the sense of oh woe is me well that's the why I asked if it was me. personal because it was written so mm. like a um, like an official record well, yeah I mean that's, that's a very much a style that comes even in his letters sometimes he comes across very matter of fact so these are two notable ones his uncles both executed and his only really close family members other than his um, sisters. Thomas Seymour in 1548, this is when it's a chronicle rather than a day-by-day, mm. the last thing for the year. Also, Lord Sudley, Admiral of England, was condemned to death and died the March following. 
That's uncle, his uncle. That's uncle number one. And then Somerset, his older uncle, yeah. the protector in 1552. And this is when it is a diary. The Duke of Somerset had his head cut off upon Tower Hill between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh, you've got the time then. Yes. Nice. Nice. And that's all he says. So there's many people see a very cold, sort of emotionally detached, even when he's mentioning close friends or relatives. And there's this sense that, all could they mean a slightly dark and ruthless thing brewing yeah, possibly father. in his defence apparently he was devastated when apparently sadly the Brandon brothers and the Dukes of Suffolk both died from the sweating sickness in 1551 within an hour of each other oh that's tragic when they were very young so that extinguished that line they both go apparently he was said to have been very upset by this although he didn't show his emotion at court again that's awful mm. he was clearly devoted to Catherine Parr and indeed Mary despite the conflict so we did see him crying mm. when he was arguing with her and also, he had a friend called Jane Dormer, who was something of a little bit of a childhood sweetheart. Oh. Apparently, in um, 1554, where you know, he's only seven, but he referred to her as My Jane. And apparently, she lost to him at cards, and then he consoled her, saying, Now, Jane, your king is gone. I shall be good enough for you. Well, I don't you you've lost your king card. Oh, I see, right. Yeah, I yeah. shall be your king. Yeah. Oh, and she, ladies, man. a little bit of a fact, is uh, a very, very distant ancestor of Natalie Dormer, um, who was Anne Boleyn in the Showtime series The Tudors. Really? She's actually related to a friend of Edward VI. Blimey. So there's a sign there that there are actually some tenderer aspects to him. But yeah. there's still this ruthless, cold element that you can see in his dad. Yeah, I'll give naught if you lose <laughs> half, because I don't think you did... <laughs> Oh, I know, I've got to give naught. There's nothing there, is there? No, I mean, that isn't scandal. No. There's boring. some good tidbits, but yeah. not, not a scandal. So that's a naught of a scandal, not a very high score. Subjectivity. Well, this is where, obviously, there's a lot of things going on in the reign. Mm. Questionable how much of it he is directly influencing, but on the good side... With Northumberland's government, we saw a lot of successes, particularly the coinage. England had been in dire financial straits, but they managed to turn things around, managed to get things back onto a sure footing, which is very important for the growth that comes under Elizabeth. Very much the roots of it take place in this mm. period. Mm. And indeed, in terms of the way that government is starting to be organised, one of the key secretaries under Northumberland is Sir William Cecil, who's a key advisor of Elizabeth. So there's a sense of some foundations being laid yeah. that will come back later. And also we see with Northumberland greater stability, so the rebellions are being quelled, peace with France and Scotland, Edward's able to go on this progress 1552 yeah, without any yeah. trouble. Things are probably on a surer footing by the end of the reign. Um, we see exploration in this period have a bit of an important development. John Dee, who is a geographer, cartographer and all sorts of things. Damon Arvon's recently done an opera about him. Really? Yeah. And he, he argued it was possible to reach China by sailing around the north of Russia. So people got sent off there, and one of them, 1553, Richard Chancellor, found his way to Russia, went off to Moscow, and made an important trading treaty with uh, Tsar Ivan IV, a.k.a. Ivan the Terrible. Huh. So um, we've got a commercial relationship with Ivan the Terrible. That's, that's really important. Mm. As far as the future, once you've got that, you've got it. <laughs> it's like going all the way around the world and ending up at your neighbour's house going, I could have gone an easier way. <laughs> but still. Yeah. yeah. The Reformation, it's, it's a great achievement. It's a very radical movement, much more radical in a way even than Henry VIII's reign. 
mm. in terms of what gets done. The 1552 prayer book that Cranmer produces, his legacy lives on today. It was a model for an Elizabethan book, which in itself was a key building block for the modern Anglican church. So mm. it's a very influential period. It has a lasting legacy. And as you said, he's shown great, great promises. The languages, the Latin, French, Greek. Apparently he wrote secret notes to himself in Greek so that not everybody else would be able to read it. And obviously he could write it. Apparently he had a photographic memory. He could name every creek and bay and rivulet in England, Scotland and France and remember all the names of everybody of any position in the country. So you know, he can mm. store everything up there. Arguably he's England's most educated and intellectually gifted king possibly ever. He's probably the most talented of the Tudor family who are incredibly talented and intelligent in and of themselves. And we often see the royal family, probably from the Hanoverians and the Georgians, as being stupid. Certainly from the Georgians, yeah. But not in this period. Yeah. He's really, really intelligent, really scholarly. In yeah. another life, he could have been you know, a philosopher, an academic or something. I think we've got the uh, Jane Seymour issue, though. Died before he could prove us wrong. Indeed, he did die before he could prove us wrong. And there are negatives to the reign as well. As we've covered, there is serious factional uh, factional disputes at court. So we had the Seymour brothers intriguing against yeah. each other, leading to Thomas Seymour's execution. Northumberland, not only does he ultimately execute Somerset, but he plays the Seymours off against each other at the start of the reign. So apparently he encouraged Thomas Seymour to go for the governorship. And then when he does go for it, he says to Somerset, I told you he'd do that, didn't I? You can't trust him, he's out for your blood. Playing them off against each other. Even Somerset, when they have the um, uh, the trial for his execution, having released Somerset to help him fend off the Conservatives, and then you're going to execute him in public, he makes great protestations, saying, "I'm much persuaded by your argument. I'll do all that I can to get you clemency." Behind mm. the scenes, he's saying, "We should definitely execute him. He should be executed. We should get rid of him." Cranmer is mm. in dispute with Gardiner, has him locked up for most of the reign. So we've still got that legacy from Henry VIII that everybody's jostling. Yeah, jostling about. And the Reformation was incredibly destructive in many ways. And the Protestants in the country are still a minority at this stage. It's apparently about 1547, only about a fifth of Londoners were Protestant. A minority in Kent, Sussex, Essex, Bristol, everywhere else, almost nobody at all. Really? Yes, it's very limited. So it's quite unpopular as well. Well, exactly. So we see the monuments being defaced, wall paintings covered with whitewash, some stained glass windows being removed, all the old images and all the old traditions are gone. And it's revolutionary. Latin mass being abolished, all these things, goes way beyond what Henry VIII had Mm. set up. So that's all the more surprising then that there wasn't more. Well, and because a minority, the idea should be, stead as she goes, keep it as it was until it comes of age. But no, instead radical change that go against beliefs in much of the population so hence we see social strife with the rebellions 1549 mm. one of the most serious uprisings of the century and it's because people are so upset with what's going on but they're also upset with the economy we saw rising commodity prices a debasement of the currency circa 30% of face value in terms of the coins and everything the wars, the land enclosures. A husbandman in 1548 about the enclosures said, Truly these enclosures do unto us all, for they make us pay dearer for our land which we occupy and cause us to be able to have no land for our money to put to tillage. All is taken up for pasture, either for sheep or the grazing of cattle. They've got lots of animals out everywhere and the common man isn't able to mm. plough his field. It's not good. Now, although it gets better at the end of the mm. reign under Northumberland, nevertheless for much of the reign it's not been much fun. No, I can't give him much for this. And also the rebellions. Apparently something like 15,000 rebels might have been killed 
in the process of this. Yeah, some some of the numbers we've seen, which demographically would be equivalent to about two hundred thousand today. Yeah, that's huge loss huge. of life. Apparently, it's also a very negative turning point for the Cornish language because that was where the rebellion against the prayer book happened. And this is a period where apparently the language was strengthening. There's a bit of a sense of identity really developing, but afterwards it's really snubbed out. And of course, there is no Cornish Bible in the way there is a Welsh Bible. Right. Why so, is that? Because of this rebellion. Because they rebelled. Now, we talked about the great potential that Edward had, all the positives, but on the other hand, you can flip that and see some negative potential as well for what he might have become. In religion, we see that conflict with Mary, that requirement for absolute theological conforma- uh, uh, conforming with what he did. There's a bit of a zealous air mm. to it sometimes. You can wonder, could he have become a bloody Edward in the way that he says yeah. bloody Mary? Might he have you know, martyred thousands and thousands of Catholics when he got older and more aggressive, more like his authoritarian father? A priggish zealot. With Indeed. the same streak that Henry had. Some people are saying that the Anglicanism that Edward could have left us could have been more of a dour Puritan Protestantism, sort of no cakes and ale and Shakespeare core mm. tradition, mm. all these fun things. Could have been wiped right out. He was his father's son. He was strong-willed, determined to get his own way, as we saw when he's crying but still mm. forcing, slightly emotionally detached. Perhaps he's able to distinguish between the personal and the state. Um, you know, he could have been just as powerful and just as terrible. That's as Henry. true. That's probably quite good. That he had that. Um, uh, he could differentiate between himself, personal, and the state. Perhaps mm. so. It's not an att- attack on the crown, isn't it? Mm. But we see him as being a small, yeah, weak yeah, yeah, yeah. child. We've seen he's on the verge of becoming a man, and he's very much involved. And he, Henry VIII, is probably the most powerful king that we've ever had. If Edward had lived to be, you know, thirty, forty, mm. he would have had at least as much power. If not yeah, more. yeah, certainly. And of course, the succession does not go well. We'll see you next week. He leaves Jane Eyre as Grey, removes his sisters from the succession. That goes against Henry VIII's will and leads us into the threat of civil war because obviously Mary and indeed Elizabeth aren't going to stand by and let Lady Jane Grey. Who is over. mother of neither of them? Yeah, she's their cousin. Mm. So, you know, that's not a great last thing to do. One of his lasting legacies, really, where it really does make an impact. It's not a good thing. I, do, I can't, yeah, no, I can't give him many points because they're good stuff. Um, isn't really I mean I know it's difficult because he's a minority but isn't really him mm. and a lot of the good stuff that we've seen in the past has been um, changes things like Henry made he was a renaissance king that would have just carried mm. on the bad stuff is him like the mm. poor succession um, I mean even saying that there's nothing really we can go on I mean we're, there's a lot of um, mm. it's just there's, there was the exploration there's important development there yeah. Um, as we said, Northumberland had got things stabilised by the end of the reign, which is important for building on the economic prosperity. But otherwise, there there was the good. There's the good and the negative promise in Edward. He could go either way. It's kind of this. The great thing about Edward is he is this what might have been of English yeah. history. Yeah. So for subjectivity, do you mark him down for the <laughs> for yeah. the very little bad stuff or up for the very little good? I suppose you have to even it out and say that none of it ever happened. So you have to just it's, you can only go on what actually happened. Yeah. There's not much there. I'm going to give him a three and a half. There's some positives there and things being done, but ultimately it's quite a fractious period. Yeah, I just, I can't find enough. I'll go one and a half <laughs> because I think, because there, because there isn't much to go on, what there is to go on, um, the things that really made a difference were bad, like the poor yeah. um, succession. Mm. So that's a five for subjectivity, not doing too well at the moment, Edward. No, it's not. Longevity. 
He rules from 1547 to 1553. That's just six years on the throne, I'm afraid. But and it, it's sad. I mean, it's you know, it's more it's more than some had actually looking back. But mm. of course, he's just at the point at which he gets to become king. And when it's he because dies. the minority is those six years don't count for as much. Yeah. Dynasty, not the program. Obviously, doesn't have any children. Never gets the chance. So that's uh, only 15 score overall six. It? It's not the lowest. Um, Edward V had 0.24. He was one of the princes in the tower. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's it for Edward, but we still have to consider that final category. Does he have that sense of greatness, that achievement, that lasting legacy, that star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! It's, no. No. If I try and put the positives. Let's go on. Or reasons which make him notable. You like him because he's nearly another Henry VIII. <laughs> he's the last Tudor king. Yeah. The last minor. Yeah. Um, probably the most intelligent and gifted, in many ways, of all of the Tudors. And we've got the romance of what might have been. <laughs> he's got so much potential, so much intelligence. And there's a sense with the diary, and because everything that he does as a prince and a king is so well recorded... Even though in many ways he's a sort of forgotten king, so well un- so little known, in a way he's one of the ones I felt that I've known the most because almost every year, in yeah, the month, is yeah. so well recorded. And we get his little notes and his chronicles. Yeah. He's well known. There was uh, David Nolan, uh, one of our regular listeners, uh, left a comment saying that we should have like a tourism factor or something as well, a little thing for points. So like Henry VIII could have got a few oh, points. Oh, that's a Hampton great Court. idea. And of course, you know, just up the road, one of the top schools in the country, Edward VI Grammar School. Of course. Right, got of course, lots, on the way here. I didn't lo- even put that together. Lots of King Edward schools up and down the country. So, you know, there's a bit of a lasting legacy there. On the other hand, yeah. it's a difficult factional reign, destructive, uh, destructive reformation. He's on the cusp, but he never quite crosses the threshold. It's what might have been, but that means that it never was. Yeah, exactly. Bad and luck. Because of that, he doesn't get the chance to show us what he could have done. Mm. Mm. No, no, it's, it's a definite... has to be a no. It's... um. It was an interesting one, though. Yes, there's more than um, a lot more there than you were expecting, I think. Yeah, than not Henry VIII and not Elizabeth. Yes, never mind poor old Mary. Yeah, yeah, who cares? Anyway, that is uh, the end of Edward VI. Um, The tragedy, really, of course, Henry VIII. After all that he did, all the people he killed, and breaking with Rome and all everything, the son that he got out of it at the end never lives to become a man. In the end, it ends up being the daughter that he had twenty years earlier. He'd have been very proud of Elizabeth. Am I forgetting Mary again? Yes. <laughs> Look forward to her. <laughs> Next time, um, it's a debate, of course. Some people would suggest that whether we do Mary or whether we do Lady Jane, Jane Grey. Grey. We've made a decision, though. We've made a decision. The fact that I said Lady Jane Grey and the fact that everybody says Lady Jane Grey tells you what you need to know. She's Lady Jane Grey. She's not the Queen. Mary's the Queen, so we'll be doing Mary next week. So, until then, goodbye from me. Cheerio.